Hello and welcome to the Matthias J. Barker podcast. This is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what matters even despite hardship. I got to have a conversation with John Mark Comer, who is a personal hero of mine, my favorite preacher in the United States. He's someone that, gosh, I just feel like we've been on these similar journeys for like the past, I don't know, 10 years. And and I've been following his work, reading his books, listening to his sermons at his church at Bridgetown in Portland and, and have just felt this resonance with how he expresses Christian faith, his walk with Jesus and, and my own walk and my own struggles and uh, values in that. And so what's cool is just getting to talk to someone so like-minded. And I, I think uh, there's multiple times in this podcast where I forgot that we were recording a podcast. So I and I just know we have so much common ground, so I use a lot of references and theological words and maybe some referencing different authors and stuff without maybe doing a good job of defining terms and, uh, I don't know, um, pointing out who different people are. So if, if there's some points along the way that feel, I don't know, like we kind of get into the weeds, uh, don't give up hope because we loop back around to a place that's maybe a lot more approachable, um, especially kind of halfway through. I think we uh, we get into spaces that are really relevant to, you know, whether you're religious or not, whether you're kind of Christian or not. And I think, you know, in my email to John Mark, I just told him, hey, you're someone I deeply trust. And and if I'm going to have a conversation that's really overtly about my religious values, you're, you're somebody that I feel, um, I don't know, that I trust. And that if people were getting an impression of what it's like to follow Jesus or getting an impression of what even my religious convictions are, it would be in this space talking with John Mark Comer. And uh, he's someone that I can really full and wholeheartedly sign off on as someone trustworthy and someone if you were I don't know having thoughts about faith or real you know religion just more generally he's a worthy and trustworthy source so I'm stoked to get to share this conversation with you it was so personally fun it was so it was so meaningful for me so I hope you enjoyed as much as I did uh without further ado John Mark Comer John Mark Homer, I'm so happy to get to talk to you. Thank you for taking time to do this with me. Yeah, such a joy to chat to you. I've been looking forward to getting to know you. Yeah, well, I wanted to tell you a little bit, maybe to start just about how I came in contact with your work and the significance okay. of uh, your writing and, and how that's been for me. And so I, um, I haven't actually announced this publicly before, but um, so I, I wrestle with bipolar too. And so that's uh, for those wow. listening... That's a, that's a disorder, bipolar depression is a disorder where you kind of oscillate yeah. between these states. So something called hypomania, which is like yeah. really engaged interest, really intense uh, energy your, and your, enthusiasm. Your arousal is kind of like at 11. Yeah, it's, and it really feels that way. It, it feels like you're driving at 100 miles an hour and everyone else is at 50 miles an hour. And it's super fun until you get where you want to go, but then you pass it and, <laughs> and you can't stop. And so... Um, a lot of people kind of look at that and was like, wow, it'd be cool to be able to stay up for just like, you know, hours on end or like in my master's program, I was doing weeks or months worth of schoolwork all just in one sitting, you know, just because I could, Wow, you can yeah. maintain these incredible amounts of concentration. Like I remember I got into ceramics, I uh, like doing pottery and I was doing pieces that, you know, within a few months that people would take years for people to be able to do, but that's just because I would do it for hours and hours and hours on end. And if my hands were bleeding, I'd keep going. And it was just like this yeah. relentless. Um, and, and it felt like internally a lot, like if I didn't reach a, whatever goal I had in my head, whatever standard I had in my head for what I needed to do, if I didn't reach that, there was some impending doom 
there was some impending catastrophe. There was something wow. that was going to happen to me. And so it was yeah. very much, even though on the outside, it looks like a lot of enthusiasm and it can feel like that, especially towards the end for anyone who wrestles with bipolar too. It's, it feels a lot like anxiety and fear. Yeah. And, uh, and like uh, Gosh, having man. someone behind you with a whip, just like telling you to go. And so, yeah. and then that oscillates from, from that state into like, <laughs> you're in a car with all brakes and no gas. And, uh, yeah. And so that was really confusing. I think for a lot of employers growing up, like they would just see me, like I, I was in a sales job and I just have months where I'm number one <laughs> and, and not yes. just number one, like doubling the guy in second, right. like, you know, <laughs> I used to work at guitar center and, and, uh, just yeah, come on these crazy numbers for sales. And then weeks where I'm at the very bottom. Yeah. And, uh, and my employers are like, Why? how long was that time span between, and forgive me if I don't use the right language here, but when you began to present, you know, or manifest the mm -hmm. symptoms of bipolar and when it was diagnosed and you realized, oh, this is what I have and I need to, yeah. you know, adjust my life to it. That's a good question. How long, um, how long was that? Are we talking about 20 years, two years? Yeah, well, high school, I'd say. So really like around puberty, like 13, 14, maybe. And that's a little um, early, right, for yeah. bipolar to present. Doesn't it normally hit more in your 30s? Well, I mean, it can hit in your twenties. That's, that's probably the most common presentation is, is kind of hitting okay. your twenties is what, is what I've read, but, um, wow. Yeah. So as a high schooler, you already have puberty and hormones and yeah. And I mean, like everybody's a mess at that point. So you probably <laughs> just assume you're like everybody else. Yeah. And I think I just kind of chalked it up to me being really enthusiastic and, and I went to a pretty, I grew up in a pretty Pentecostal kind of world where it was very, uh, it was almost like there was a lot of spiritual categories to be able to put that intense yes. hypomania and yes. then and then the darkness was very much demonic oppression like it was very yes. much like and and so i just thought i was in this zone of constantly being filled with the spirit and then i i was like i was a worship leader at my church and so i was doing all wow. this stuff and i was volunteering and i was leading retreats and writing music and and uh, I was in worship at like three different churches <laughs> like his I don't even know how that worked but I was like on Wednesday nights and Friday nights and Sundays and and then I'd have yeah. moments where I just crash and I just thought it was well you know clearly the demons know what I'm up to and they and they know right. I'm doing all this great stuff so they're trying to stop me and then and then uh, it would feel like temptation anytime I was in this depressive state if I couldn't leap out of it with some sort of spiritual fervor then I felt tremendous shame and guilt oh how you know, tragic. And, and no one really had categories to be able to interpret that for me. So the pastors, right. the pastors that I was with were all kind of baffled like I was like, right. That, that Matthias, he's something else. Let's, let's pray more or I know Sam pro prayer, but yeah, what a yeah. tragic, it was yeah, hard. our category when we don't have categories, we don't have grace, you know, yeah. we don't have patience and understanding yeah. and compassion. Wow. That's a great thought. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It was, um, so I was, I was going through high school, kind of flipping back and forth and then, um, and experiencing pretty intense depression around that time, moving into my twenties, so yeah. 22, 23. Sorry. And you're having shame. You're saying at the same point, like there's a, cause it's been spiritualized as demonic or as sin, or as you just can't get with the program. So yeah. now you carry, you carry not just the, the pain of that kind of and the genius of that kind of, because as you know, bipolar is in a sense a gift. It's a, yeah. it's a curse and a gift, it seems like, you know, so, yeah. many the lumina so many luminaries of the human condition would identify as bipolar and are such a gift to the world, you know, but um, so you're carrying all of the shame too, it sounds like. 
That's exactly right. Yeah, and I think, I think it was, um, I think it was seen like that, like the way you're describing. Everyone kind of saw me almost as this superhuman thing. Right. Like when I was, when I was uh, 16, I I put together this like citywide worship concert, like that got together like a couple dozen churches, and we all got together and then mm-hmm. fed the homeless, and we were. Um, we just had this like meal with the homeless, like a big potluck where everyone brought food and then we had all these churches and it was covered on the news and it was this huge thing. And everyone was like, was this kid doing this? And I, and I just, <laughs> and then I hit this dip right after that. Of yeah. just, because I think that's that for people struggling with this, you realize that like there's these ecstasy highs, but then they're yes. followed by this dramatic plummet. And, yeah. uh, and I just, and I felt this constant tug and pull of, all this potential that everyone saw in me mm-hmm. and all this incredible um, talent that everyone saw, but this inability to be able to control it and to, yeah, to keep it up. And so I, I this imposter syndrome really like possessed me. I'm just like, I can do this sometimes. And then sometimes I can't. And so when people count on me, I don't know if I can follow through. Would you explore that? I'd love to hear more about the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's this ability that you have that it seems like no one else has. And that's this incredible concentration, this enthusiasm. Yeah. that's really contagious. This intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. yeah. And, and when it's paired with intelligence, I'm, I'm really creative and really artistic and really, uh, I don't know. I, I love reading hard books. And so that it just looks yeah. like I'm this brainiac, talented, whatever. And then, yeah. but uh, the inverse is just as severe in my life where I just feel completely, you know, there's a, these other modes where I feel immensely self-critical, immensely self-loathing and then demotivated. And, you know, all, so all the, the high highs have these inverse low lows. And so, yeah. and, and they come at unpredictable times. And so there's this fear of, there's going to be a moment when it really counts when I need this you know, uh, almost like, like when you're watching the Hulk in the Avengers. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. He's like, what if it doesn't show up? <laughs> like, come on. Like, where is he? You know, like the aliens are here. We need you. Oh yeah, my that's, gosh. And, uh, and I think bipolar one can especially feel like that. Like, um, but I think in hypomania, it's, it's a similar feeling like, and, and I think you put a lot of your self-worth in what you're able to achieve in an unhealthy state. And then it's reinforced by other people. And that's what I think creates the shame as everyone sees that high output and they're like, yes, that's what we want. Yeah. And um, cause we live in a culture that praises high output and yeah. that doesn't have categories for rest. And, yeah. uh, and so I, so I came into your work at like 22, 23, I, I was reading the sermons of um, John Wesley and okay. became kind of convinced through his sermons, just that Sabbath is something that I don't know. I just never really heard of like growing up in church. Yeah. No one talks about it. Yeah. It was just in the air, but, and it was, that was the thing the Jews did and uh, that went away with Jesus. And (laughs) I always thought that was a little peculiar. And then, and so I'm reading. And and those, and those seventh day Adventists, which (laughs) none of us, none of us really knew, but are they a cult? Are they, who are those people? Yeah. My mom grew up seventh day Adventist too, which is really, yeah, she did. She, she grew up in that whole world. Uh, She's not anymore, but yeah. And she, she uh so she doesn't have tons i don't know i I don't want to speak for i'm sure she has affection for it in some ways but she certainly didn't was like matthias let me walk you into the ways of seventh day avatism sabbath observance she right um, that wasn't the the pitch so i have i was reading these sermons by john wesley and then i just reading the book of hebrews and i'm like sabbath is like at the core of this what 
Yeah. There, there seems to be a message for the New Testament church in, in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is used as this object lesson in, in chapter three and chapter four for something that Jesus did. And I just couldn't, I couldn't put together why no one has ever talked about this. And, and then yeah. I became convinced that the Sabbath was, in a sense, the uh, maybe the embodied practice of yeah. the rest that we have in Christ. Yes. And, um, and to flesh that out a little bit for those listening might be that. So Jesus, you know, in the beginning in Genesis, when God uh, rested on the Sabbath day, he rested in something very good. And he looked at creation and he saw that this is um, something he was content with. Like his work was finished is another way to say that. And so he made it holy and then rested in it. And there's this, in, in the book of Hebrews, the author is really kind of trying to pull this significance into the work of Christ and saying that Christ's work on the cross was a finished good work and that we don't rest in our finished good work because our work is never finished and we're human yeah. and we, we have a million things that are always not really yeah, tied up broke and, and yeah yeah but then uh but in jesus we can rest in his finished work because his work is good and he is the sabbath rest that we can um constantly sit in how, how would you explain i know that you explained that in your book would you add to that how would you yeah i mean 110 i mean gosh there's hours of conversation around sabbath i love hebrews you know if Hebrews is a bit tricky to interpret, you know, in chapter four, there's that beautiful line, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Yeah. And in context, you know, the author isn't necessarily writing about the day per se, he's writing about the larger kind of theological metaphysic behind like mm -hmm. what Christ has done and the reality of living in the aftermath of Christ's life and teaching and death and burial and resurrection. And now at the right hand of the father and that that's I mean that's a metaphysical reality, right? And how do you live into that? And I think I'm 110% with you. I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Sabbath is an embodied practice, or what Christians often call spiritual discipline. I really shy away from that language because spiritual is such a, a kind of a lost word for our generation. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it means everything. It means nothing, mm. and it means disembodied for a lot of people. And that's not what it means at all in the New Testament. And so Sabbath is an embodied practice. It is literally something that you do with your body, that you put on a calendar. It has to do with how you posture your mind and your body and your life and everything about your holistic existence, your soul in biblical language, which is very different than like in Greek thought or modern thought where your soul is that like little cartoon part of you that goes to heaven when you die. Your soul is your whole person. It's about in psychological language, the integration of your whole person around its center yeah. in God. And so, yeah, I think Sabbath is an embodied practice mm -hmm. by which we cultivate a spirit of restfulness in all of our life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like training wheels. Or I think of it almost like, you know, playing, you know, you play guitar, like scales on guitar, or, you know, you have these practices, these exercises, yeah. these drills that you do for a set period of time in order you to enable the kind of live in that capacity all of the time and at a moment's notice. And so Sabbath is like an embodied practice of rest one full day a week or whatever people's capacity is by which we cultivate. Yeah. That spirit of, of restfulness, you know, in all of our life. And it's what you're saying. It's like our entire culture and this transcends the left and right binary of our culture mm -hmm. right now and all the, all the culture wars it's all performative. It's a performative identity. Identity politics, the great tragedy of it is it's performative.
Yeah. And, but that's not just a left thing or a right thing. That's a post enlightenment thing, right? Mm. Where the self is the new locus point. The self is the new God. And the, the tragedy of that is it's a God that demands ultimate allegiance. You have to discover yourself. You have to be yourself. You have to take care of yourself. You have to fight for yourself, advocate for yourself, define yourself, provide for yourself. And it is exhausting mm -hmm. because your entire identity at that point is performative. And all of your sense of self-worth is rising or falling based on how cool you are, how many followers you have on social media, what other people say about you. You know, it's Henry Nouwen's interpretation of Jesus in the wilderness that our identities are either three things. They're what we do, what we have, or what other people say about us. And as long as our identity is rooted in, in what we do or in what we have or in what other people say and think about us, which is not who we are. It's who other people think we are or claim we are. It's not who we are. As long as our identities and rest in that, we will strive. We will live not from a spirit of restfulness, but of exhaustion because our whole life is one of striving and, and nobody is immune. Liberals, conservatives, urban, rural, Christians, atheists, none of us are immune. This yeah. is like the human part of the problem of the human condition. That's literally, as you said, in Genesis, that problem. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that. I think the gift, not just of Sabbath, because you can practice Sabbath and not have any kind of identity that's grounded in some, you can still take a day off yeah. every week yeah. and have your identity completely mm -hmm. wrapped up in what you do or what you have or what other people say to you about or all three. So that's where a Sabbath in the New Testament is, is not just a embodied practice like yoga or other great things, but it's an actual like theology and those two things go together. And I do think that in the last, it's really only the last hundred years, as far as I can tell, the theology somehow got disconnected from the practice. You know, as so you're yeah. reading John Wesley, in his mind, the rest of Christ and the Sunday as the Sabbath are just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. But that it got, you know, like, like Christians often do, like Westerners often do, you know, going back to the time of Plato, we spiritualized it mm -hmm. and then we lost the embodied power of it, you know? Oh, oh I love how you painted that. And that, that transition from spiritualizing something and then disembodying it I, I almost i heard this Spirit, spiritualizing isn't even the right word so we, we like yeah. allegorized it or something yeah theology spiritualized isn't the right word because if you if you take spirit to be something i mean that's not the right word but yeah no i saying? get what you mean though because there's this there's this idea that i was i was kind of piecing apart um in a conversation actually with uh there's a psychologist i don't know if you know who steve hayes is he's a psychologist who created something called act acceptance and commitment therapy um or uh contextual behaviorism i, I was talking to a psychologist mm -hmm. about this idea that we <laughs> we're always kind of picking apart things to the point where they become so disembodied that they make no sense to us and right. and it's like they actually need to be part of the whole in order for it to make any sense or have any utility at all and right. i think we have these these theological, um, this is such a crude way to put it, but this theological fetishes that really disembody the, yeah, maybe the impact and the power of the idea to the point where we feel certain and we feel right. And I think that's almost this subvert desire we have to exert control and to feel, yes, okay. yes, yes, come on, to feel and, safe. Uh, and people can dress it up in all sorts of good motivations. Like we're just trying to get to what the text means. And that's great. Like, of course, I'm about like, good hermeneutics and understanding what the Bible says and then living your life out of that. But there's, there's also this, um, I don't know. It's, I think that's what a lot of the new Testament and Jesus's work was about. He's like, he's like, you've lost the heart of it. You've lost sight of the whole, you've lost yeah. sight of like you, uh, 
like, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Like you would, you'd take your ox to water, but you wouldn't let a man be healed. And that was his confrontation. It wasn't in the minutia. Anyway, that's a, that's a fun side trail, but to no, I, I don't think that's a side trail. I think that's, I think, I mean, I'm with, I think control yeah. based on fear is at the root in my reading of the library of scripture. And if I think if I'm hearing Jesus, right, I think that control rooted in fear is at the root of the problem of the human condition. Mm. You know, I think you could, you could summarize the entire spiritual journey in the way of Jesus and the writings of the new Testament as the journey from fear to the journey to love. And, you know, the whole new Testament idea that fear and love are antithetical that you see in Jesus, you see it most blatantly in John, you know, perfect love casts out fear where there is fear, there is no love. And, you know, as long as we're run by fear, which is that like evolutionary, right? Survival instinct yeah, deep yeah. in our body, you know, all the evolutionary psychology better than, better than I. And a lot of it's, you know, I think it sounds like it's conjecture masquerading as fact, but it's interesting. However, however it got into our body, it's in there now. We have this like primal, evolutionary survival of the predator on the savanna fear built into our limbic system that often turns into us attempting to control our environment so that we feel safe. And as long as we try to control the people around us, be it our spouse or a therapist or a church or the world or politics mm-hmm. or the country, we will always sabotage love. Yeah. because control is antithetical to it, you know? And so until we give that up, so no, I, don't, I think that's at the root. And that's why Sabbath is such a gift because it's a daily, it's a weekly practice of not being in control. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. so good. I, 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 um, I was going to a Calvinist Bible school when, <laughs> when I started oh, realizing these I'm things. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's terrible. No, no. It, I, don't, I don't mean, I mean, no disrespect. Well, I mean a little disrespect. Well, we I mean a little bit of that. disrespect, but. I think most Calvinists are used to it by now. Um, yeah. I love you Calvinists listening. I know we have a complicated relationship, but I'm happy you're here. Um, so I just, I was going to this school and, and that was one of my main retorts to my professors. It's like, how can love be so controlling? Why doesn't love create freedom? It just seems like that's part of the point is that, yeah, okay. We don't have a completely free will. Like I can't fly if I want to. Um, I'm not omnipresent. Like, yeah, my will is constrained, but it seems like um, I, I was I was in this space like with this in this Calvinist for those listening that don't understand all these terms. Calvinism is this idea that um, that God is predestined and kind of already foreordained everything that's happened in the world and that everything is not just known that God knows what's going to happen, but he's actually um, not quite directly chosen everything. There's some people that might think that, but um, foreordained or approved or signed off on everything that's happened. And that he's working all things together for his larger plan. And of course, there's great people who really love and abide by that thought. I think that what made it complicated for me in that space was there wasn't um, a high value in things like um, Christian contemplation, mysticism, being able to kind of sit back in the loss of control, um, being able to... I don't know. How do I put it? I think, I think in my unique struggle around that time of life coming into reading your book, um, garden city, that was about Sabbath Mm. was this cool cup of water. That was like, Matthias, you can rest and it's, Mm. uh, you don't have to perform. You don't have to, um, achieve. You don't have to, you don't have to anything. You can just be in the presence of God and that that's enough. 
for you to matter and that's enough for you to be valuable. And, um, and so I sat in that and, and I started practicing this Sabbath and, and I started kind of learning that. And then I, uh, I also several years later picked up your book, the ruthless elimination of hurry. And, um, and it was, it was an expansion, I think of the heart of that idea that continued to kind of teach me just this practice of this rhythm of life that wasn't so dependent on my manic performance. And for those, I don't know, for those of you who, who might know about bipolar, it's like, it's a circadian rhythm disorder. And so routine is paramount for any sort of recovery or, or just like right. functioning life and <laughs> in, in having bipolar too. And, right. uh, and so I, I came into realizing that I had bipolar two just in my master's program and, and working with a psychiatrist to um, I just went to just looking wow. for answers and we just kind of worked it out and fi- we're figuring out what was happening. And, and how I, old were you? So this was um, 26. Wow, yeah. man. So that's 10 mm-hmm. years of living with that and, and no, no answers. No, just, yeah. And just, yeah. I mean, what's, it. what's that, what's that line from uh, Richard Rohr? I'm not on the same page as him when it comes to theology, but he has some beautiful insights. Um, he has that great line about not everything can be fixed and solved, but it must be properly named. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something you can't, it's not that you having a name for something will just fix it as a silver bullet but it, it will give you a whole name and a, a capacity to align to it and accept to it and make peace with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry it took um, so long for that. Thank you. It was, um, sorry, big car rushing by. Uh, <laughs> I think though that, I think that God was showing me how to find balance before realizing that though. And, yeah. uh, and I guess I, I tell you that whole story just to say that, your work was instrumental in me finding that rhythm and that rhythm oh, that wasn't really based in, in me having to be this superhuman hypomanic thing that could create the output that everyone wanted. But that oh, was man. just uh, grounded in the presence of God and, uh, oh, and resting in him. And uh, I, I'm, I'm getting emotional, but I'm just so thankful, man. I'm so thankful that you followed your heart and writing those books and, and putting that into the world. And I'm so happy I ran into them because they, uh, they guided me and uh, guided me when I didn't have any answers, when I didn't know wow. what to do. And when I felt really angry at myself and uh, they guided me into the presence of God. And so I'm really, I'm really thankful, John Mark. Thank you. I'm um, just so, I mean, that's so tender. Thank you for trusting me with that story. And it is yeah. such a, a humble honor to get to help in any way, you know, mm-hmm. a fellow suffering soul on the way back to God, you know, mm-hmm. as you're sharing that, and man, that's just so tender. Thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for trusting me with that, man. That's such an honor. Um, let me see if I can find it here. I want to read. There's this um, quote I read. Yeah. This is from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Very ancient female spiritual writer, mystic, contemplative, follower of Jesus. I read this by her recently. She said, I think that in heaven, my mission will be to draw souls by helping them go out of themselves to cling to God Mm. by a holy, simply, and loving movement and to keep them in this great silence within 
that will allow God to communicate himself and transform them into himself. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, man, that's, that's the work. Do you know, um, the work, uh, has an anonymous author, um, the cloud of unknowing. Absolutely. 14th century (laughs) British monk of no name. Yeah. No name, which is fitting. Um, it really is fitting for that work. It's one of the great, (laughs) for those of you listening, it's like one of the great classics of the, not just the Christian contemplative tradition, but kind of just the Christian tradition, you know? Yeah. He, uh, yeah, it's, it's that guy. And then the, um, I think the tradition, the desert tradition, kind of based in the Egyptian. Uh, yes. Right. Evagrius and yeah, the desert whole, and uh, You know, mindfulness is a very common, almost vogue thing in our current day. Um, and, right. and I've seen a lot in psychology and in, in my kind of yes. realm of, of psychological yes. practice, mindfulness is kind of at the very root of it. I was yep. just, uh, I just know so few people who know those authors and, <laughs> and in no Christian contemplative <laughs> traditions. So I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. What do you see as maybe the common ground of like a Christian contemplative mindfulness practice and what you see in psychology? And then what do you think the root differences are? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, now we're on to one of my favorite subjects <laughs> of all time, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, gosh. So I think let's start. I mean, first off, you know, a lot of Western Protestant Christians in the modern era don't even realize that there is not just a Christian contemplative tradition and not even just a rich contemplative tradition, but that some would argue it is the founding tradition that predates Buddhist thought, Hindu thought, 110% predates secular mindfulness, a number of very smart psychologists would argue that actually the mindfulness tradition, which in kind of the etymology, as the story is told, it's most of the nods go to Buddhism, but a number would say that actually like, like it's the Christian tradition, but the West is such a kind of reaction right now against Christianity that it's just not, it's not cool. Like you can quote, uh, you can be a secularist and you can quote Buddhist and you're cool. You can't (laughs) quote like, St. Teresa or St. John of the Cross or the cloud of unknowing yeah, or, yeah. you know, a yeah. Jesuit or it's just, that's just not cool right now. Um, I'm back. Sorry, go ahead. You're great. No, it's very much a thing that I read this fascinating, like it was theoretical, but this guy that was based on data was theorizing that yoga actually came from Eastern Orthodox Christian Nestorian missionaries. Apparently there's zero oh. evidence for yoga until the sixth century in India. And uh, so he made this whole case that actually it was a part of the Christian contemplative tradition, which is stronger in the East. And the Christian contemplative tradition is strongest in the, starting the desert fathers and mothers. Well, you would say it started in Jesus. And then it was strongest in kind of the Eastern church and what's now called Eastern Orthodox. And then strains of the Catholic church. It was, it's never been super strong in the Protestant tradition, which is really sad. Um, but anyway, he makes this whole case that it was like Eastern Nestorian Christian missionaries who were from, that's where the Jesus prayer comes from. And, you know, the breath prayer and contemplative practice that they actually interjected this into India. And then it was kind of subsumed into Hinduism. So I have no idea if that's even true. My point is, (laughs) that's fascinating. There is a like multi-millennia old rich tradition that it's all based on the stories about Jesus in the desert, specifically Matthew 4 and Luke 4, Luke 4 and Jesus' temptation in the desert, and how that was interpreted by the desert fathers and mothers in the 3rd and 4th century. People like Evagrius of Ponticus, who's one of the most influential Christian writers in my life, 
brilliant mind. We can come back and talk about him because he is freaking genius. I mean, he's articulating things in 350-ish is when his book is. That is like cutting edge right now, neuroscience. He's articulating slow mm-hmm. brain, fast, fast brain, preverbal thought, emotions and thoughts is the same thing, sensations of the body, unconscious memory. He's not using this language, but he's articulating like the bleeding edge of what we're hearing right now from people like yourself and neuroscientists yeah. in like 352 or something like that. Just wow. brilliant, 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 brilliant. Anyway, so what I think is similar about Christian contemplation and secular mindfulness or whatever mindfulness is the attempt to kind of get outside of your life, this like miraculous human ability that we even struggle to even figure out how it works on the science where you can see yourself seen and watch yourself watching and be aware of yourself being aware. And you can look at your thoughts and you can look at your emotions and you can look at the sensations in your body from some inner eye that is hard to even name or locate you yeah. know, under an X-ray or whatever. Huh. And, and, and what it shares with mindfulness is the capacity to, to slow down, to, to utilize your body as, a, as an aid and an ally, not a threat or a saboteur. Mm-hmm. And, and with the breath, attend to the moment and begin to see what you're seeing and think about what you're thinking and feel what you're feeling and be aware of what you're wearing and let these thoughts and emotions and the sensations pass before you in such a way that there's a healthy detachment and you realize this thought, this video that plays in my mind, this obsessive rumination, this feeling that is overwhelming, this sensation in my body, I've taken this to be myself. I've taken this to be my identity. I've taken this to be my destiny, but actually there's a self, um, if that's even the right word, there's a soul that's below all of this. It's deeper than all of this. Martin Laird, who's um, one of the best current Christian writers on contemplative prayer, uses the analogy of like a mountain in the weather. He talks about how like your soul or your spirit in biblical language is like the mountain. It's like the bedrock. And the weather is your emotions and your thoughts and the random, I got to go to a grocery store and this person's horrible and I'm angry about this political thing. And what if people are mad at me and don't like this thing or don't like what I said on the podcast? That's just the weather. And sometimes there's good weather and sometimes there's bad weather and sometimes there's boring weather. But the weather comes and goes. Mount Zion is like your spirit is deeper part of you. And so I think when you discover that deeper part of you, you're, you're allowed to detach at some inner emotional volitional place from your thoughts and emotions and sensations in, a, in such a way that you get a modicum of freedom from them. Mm-hmm. And, and that, enables, that enables you to stop grasping for control over other people. Yeah. It enables you to both sit in your emotions without being dominated by them or controlled by them. It enables you to let depression just be a feeling Mm -hmm. that you suffer through, but not be your whole person, not be your identity, not be your destiny. And it allows a space for compassion because at that point you just begin to see your humanity, your vulnerability, and that you're one of seven plus billion other people that are human and vulnerable and finite and flawed and broken and and deeply in need of healing and saving by God. And so I think that's, that's the similarity is that, that getting to that place of stillness would be Christian contemplative language for it. 
of mindfulness, of, of using your breath to get to this space where your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations are there before you. And like the weather, they come and go and you just let them come and go. You're not trying to control them or manage them or even fight them per se. You're just letting them be and you're attending to that deeper part of you to cultivate uh, less of a grasping of a control for control and more of a freedom and a compassion. But where it's dissimilar is that, you know, in, in Christian contemplative practice, you're not just breathing and trying to detach. You're trying to attach, if that's the right word, to the love of God by the Holy Spirit. So it's profoundly relational in nature. Mm. So secular mindfulness is, is non-relational, you know, yeah. it's, it's amoral. It doesn't have moral judgments, you know, it's non-relational and that's not bad. It's still great. Like I think mm -hmm. every person on the planet should practice mindfulness. Every grade schooler should begin their grade school day with 10 minutes of mindfulness in class. I'm, I'm, I'm very much for it. Spoken like but, a true Portland um, pastor. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but, you know, Christian contemplation, or really, I would just call it prayer, but whatever you want to call it, it, it is, is profoundly relational. Mm -hmm. Because what you find when you slip kind of below the weather of your thoughts and your emotions and your sensations is that there's this deeper part of you where in Jesus language, you know, he said, and his most famous teachings was that we're like a vine we're like a branch and we abide in the vine that is God. And that is how we bear fruits. This gorgeous agrarian metaphor about uh, human development in secular language and potential or spiritual formation in Christian language, but how we grow and mature into full flourishing. And it's, there's this part of us. And if you think about an analogy of a branch and a vine, you're not even sure like where the branch ends and the vine begins. Yeah. And while yeah. I am very orthodox in my distinction between creator and creature, like I don't think I'm God, but there is a part of me, whereas Paul writes in the New Testament, my life is hidden with Christ and God, mm -hmm. or as Jesus said, I'm a branch and he's the vine, and I'm not even sure where I end and he begins and yeah. he begins. And I, like at that point, there's just this communion in yeah. Christian language. There's this- that In him we live and breathe and move. And, and have our being, yes. So Christian mm -hmm. contemplation is not just trying to get below and free of your thoughts. It's trying to commune with the inner life of the Trinity that we call God. And, you know, as Christians, we believe that at the center of all reality, I mean, literally at the center of the universe, the causal force behind the universe, however the mechanism worked, is this Trinitarian community of Father and Son and Spirit living in self-giving, other-centered, generous, joyful, peaceful love and delight, just honoring one another, loving one another, sharing with one another, giving one another, another with radiant joy and happiness and delight and unshakable quiet peace. That this being that is manifested in Jesus of Nazareth and this being is at the center of the universe and at the center of our own spirit. He's in us by the spirit of God. So Christian, you know, a Christian mystic is very different than like a, you know, universalistic mystic or a kind of Portland progressive mystic or <laughs> yeah. a, a, a Christian mystic is just, and some people don't like that language. I have no problem with it, but whatever. It is just a Christian who's trying to experience in prayer in actuality, what is 
already true of them theologically. Mm. So, so the New Testament says, what a great definition. Christ. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's all you're trying to do. Oh, that's so the New good. Testament says, my life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm in Christ. I'm in, you know, I'm in Jesus said, I'm in the Father and you are in me. Like, we're just trying to yep. experience Jesus is in the Father and I'm in Jesus. And how do I live and participate in the inner life of the Trinity mm. by the Spirit? And so Christian contemplative practice, or really, I would just say prayer, is an attempt to actually experience what Jesus made true of us theologically through his life and death and resurrection. Mm. So, yeah, so that's where I think the dissimilarity is, is that yeah. this relational communion. Mm. So in my mind, Christian contemplative prayer is all of the good of mindfulness plus an even better, in my yeah. estimation, humble estimation, reality of you're, you're receiving love and compassion from the most compassionate, strong, fierce, mm -hmm. kind, wise, real entity, person, being in all of the universe. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's another way me, to think through that might be it's not, you're not just pouring something out, you're being filled up with something. Exactly. I, I, you put that so beautifully. I am. Um, I work a lot with mindfulness with people just in lots of different worldviews, lots of different ways that they kind of yes. their identity and, and a few and of my, it doesn't, it, do, it doesn't require a worldview, which is not, which is why it works so well for our pluralistic culture, because you yeah. can be a Christian, you can be a Buddhist, right. you can be a Muslim, you can be an agnostic and yeah. you're just breathing and trying to, you know, well, because it confronts, and, I think a really core process, even just psychologically, like in contextual behavior science, that the whole kind of, I shouldn't say the whole premise, one of several premises of contextual behavior sciences, um, that language is a behavior. And so the kinds of language um, that you attach to and that you interpret to be from the deep core part of who you are versus something that came from your past versus something that's informed by your trauma right. or something that is an expectation outside of you, uh, the media, right. the interpretive structure that you give, the thoughts that occur to you in your mind. It's not just that they impact your behavior. It's like, now that's part of the flow of you. Yes. They, yes. And so mindfulness is a really um, sharp tool to be able to almost get a little bit of distance between you and your thoughts so that you can evaluate which thoughts connect with my values, which thoughts are of me, which thoughts do I want to act in, and then which yes. ones conflict with who I am, which ones maybe give me something in the moment that I want, but in the long term compromise something that I want even more. Wow. And, and then so it was... Well What's cool is like, so I have just a few Christian clients and I'm not a Christian therapist, so I don't yes. just see Christians. I don't right. practice with everyone out of a Christian kind of space, but I'm Christian. And so this conversation is very Christian because because I, yes. I, I can take all the, <laughs> I, I, I can take all the boundaries off. I could just talk. And so with a few of my clients who are Christian and then I've invited that into our work together, mindfulness is, it's just, it feels like we can drive full speed because yeah, there's, there's all these thoughts and, and, and the Christian categories for that is like you have thoughts from the flesh, you have thoughts from sin just yes. broadly and into the world. And so sin isn't just like this deep, like moral infraction that just happens in your own heart, but it's also something that is present systemically and present in, yep. you know, in our uh, in relationships and everything around us, right? Yes. And so we are influenced, impacted and in our development in utero, like there's all these stages that we progress through in life that depart something in our own souls and in our own minds. And so it's a crowded room up there in our own minds when we're trying to piece together, who am I? And then right. like you stated so beautifully, like the, 
the identity ascension of the American West is discover who you are from scratch and make it something unique and make it something desirable. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then, just, and then perform it for the world. Yeah. 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 You know, I was listening to, I don't know if you follow Lori Santos work at all. Mm-mm. She's a cognitive psychologist from Yale done some great work. And I was, I was listening to her recently and she was talking about all of that. You would know this way better than me, but the massive shift in psychological research around the self-esteem movement. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. I'm familiar you know, with that, with that research. And she, I, this was her summary of it was her. And so I'd love to hear you agree or disagree. She was basically saying that the self-esteem movement has proved itself to be a bit of a disaster and, um, you know, our generation kind of grew up on that, much of which was an overreaction against the generation before us. But she said the problem with self-esteem is it's performative. And so, and it's delusional. So you're trying to feel good about yourself by saying kind of a combination of I'm awesome, I'm great, I'm the best self-talk, which is delusional. And, you know, as my therapist would say to me, you're never smarter than your brain. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's why it's why he doesn't do a lot of like the cognitive stuff because he's like self talk doesn't really work because you're not smarter than your brain. That's so you can you can tell yourself whatever you want, but there's some deeper part of you that knows you're not the best or you're mm. not you know a model or you're not uh you know genius intellectual or whatever you might claim to be. You're just you. You know, you're very human and you have a shadow and all of this. And then you know the other spot is just saying you know, um, I'm good. I'm great. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm great. Just the way I am, you know? And, and the problem is that is that first off the problem, the first one is there's a deeper part of us that knows we're not amazing or the best or number one or a boss or whatever. And then the problem with the other part of it is we're not always good mm-hmm. and we blow it and we make colossal mistakes at times and we disappoint everybody most startlingly ourselves. And so she was advocating, she said, rather than self-esteem, a better approach is what she called self-compassion. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, and, and the problem with the performative identity like that is it just brings shame. So the moment that you realize I'm not the smartest person and I'm not awesome and I'm not great, then you just feel shame. So you're striving mm-hmm. to perform. And when you perform, you feel good and you keep that fear at bay. And then when you screw up, you just feel this colossal shame and you have nowhere to take that shame, especially in the secular narrative. It's like, what do you do with that shame? You know? Mm-hmm. And such a shame culture that we're moving into, in particular the way social media is now used, it's just an extraordinarily vicious and shameful kind of place. And so, um, you know, she was advocating not for self-esteem, but what she called Mm self-compassion. That in those moments where you're like, I blew it, I came in last or second or third, you don't say, no, I'm really the best. I'm really good. Really, I'm a, there's nothing wrong with me. You say, I'm human. Mm -hmm. And I'm like all humans, I'm finite and I'm, I mess up and I, I do stupid things and I, I think things that are wrong and I, my body gets ahead of me and I, I live out of past pain and I invent new pain, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, I, and, and that's okay yeah. to be human yeah, and to practice I, compassion. And so exactly. I, I was like, oh man, I mean, for me, I of course went like beyond self-compassion to the compassion of God. Oh, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. How, how do you practice like not just self-compassion, which that's beautiful, but also like, I'm loved. I'm deeply yeah. loved by the center of all reality as with all of my screwed upness, mm-hmm. man, that, that for me feels like such a better path forward that yeah. doesn't lead to performance, exhaustion, shame, but leads to peace, rest and love. Yeah. That's right up my alley. So I've, I use compassion focused therapy and 
I've had oh, uh, scholars in compassion focused therapy on the podcast and oh, um, I got to so listen. All about it. Yeah, so Russell Colts, the interview with Russell Colts was all see, he's he's a scholar in that field and and we were it, there's there's kind of I had like 10 thoughts jump in my head at once when you were Did talking. I summarize that right? Or beautifully, beautifully. The way the way I would describe it is exactly the way you do. In, in my way, it would be that we have a standard of what is um, acceptable and unacceptable. And then we have yeah. a few different ways that we can view our own behavior in reference to that. It's either I hit that standard and then I'm valuable or I'm, or even I'm being yeah. myself can be a way of setting a standard. Okay. Wow. So we yes. have the standard and then I can hit it or my behavior falls short of it. And then I can either um, destroy the category and, and pretend like it doesn't matter. Um, and I think a lot of people do that within like a faith deconstruction. A lot of people just like, yeah, let's just, uh, let's just obliterate the standard because the standard is the oppressive, um, yes. you know, feature in that whole game is like, it's, rooted, be it's rooted in shame and fear, bro. It's yeah. all rooted in shame and fear. <laughs> yeah. Shame and fear. But, but the reality is that it'll just be replaced by a different standard. Yes. Um, just in different language that feels easier to hit or that you have more access that's, to. That's often even more oppressive and more legalistic and more exacting and more yeah. hypocritical and more self-righteous. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And then uh, the, the other alternative would be to just berate ourselves. Yes. And, uh, and I think people are shocked at, at their own self loathing thoughts when I point them out to them in sessions. Wow. And like, uh, like I was, like I was, I regularly talk to, to mothers of kids who are having a hard time. I, I do a lot of work with kids with ADHD, like young boys who, Oh um, yeah. You know, just working through hard stuff, having yes. problems. Um, I yes. specialize in working with kids who've gone through sexual trauma as well. And so that just comes wow. with a whole set of behavioral issues. And, um, and so I work pretty intently often with single moms because, you know, when you're trying to um, work with a dynamic such as a kid going through trauma, a kid having ADHD, um, and then you're, you're on your own, you're working full time, you're trying to like make things work yeah. and have a warm connection with your kid. They're going through something, you're trying to be there for them. It's an immensely complex, tangled web yes. that, that takes many minds to untangle, right? So yeah. um, anyway, so like I'll be working with, let's say a mom who really doesn't want to be like really oppressive and kind of rigid and, and right. uh, shameful like her parents. And so she, uh, she's trying to give her child a space where she can be, you know, she can be free and be themselves and not really be like weighed down by other people's expectations and not be burdened. But, you know, and that's, that's her standard It's like, that's what success is. Success is the child being able to discover and express a full and unique identity, not burdened by outside structure and outside domineering, um, I don't know, rigid expectations. But through clinical work, and this is almost every time, like there's a flip that happens because the child won't sleep. The child doesn't listen to her when she asks them to eat food that the child doesn't want to eat. Um, doesn't anxiety. Tons anxiety. Of anxiety. Massive yeah. problem. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this, because there's, because uh, she fears structure because she associates structure with her parents that there's no, um, there's no, I don't know, space for the kid to even discover what they want to be and what they are, because they're almost like right. wandering out at sea. And then uh, there's this huge contention that happens between mom and child. And, and then mom loses her temper and then feels worlds of shame for losing her temper at her kid. And, wow. and then I'm, so I'm pointing out the shameful thoughts that she has for not meeting her own standards 
the ways that she's imposing a structure upon her kid that her kid is rebelling against and then her feeling shame for being like her parents and like I think a lot of us think that if we just switch up our ideologies if we just switch up our um we, we try to replace pieces but we're building the same game yeah and, you're replacing and, one pharaoh for another yeah that's a great way to describe it and and so a lot of our work together turns into like let's actually build a structure that we really align with and that aligns with our values and that we feel really good about and then let's stick to it like there needs to be an outside ethic that we think yeah. builds a flourishing and good world for our kid and yeah. uh and then it can't be guided by our mood because that's often what happens is when we get mad at structure when we get mad at the at the standard when we get mad at the oppressive feature we rebel against that and then we think if we just follow the inner compass then we'll be okay but that inner compass is its own oppressive structure. It's its own dictator. It's its own, yeah. it's its own oppressive structure and will build its own instantly. And um, I don't know. So like the, the kid and the mother thing comes to mind. I also think of even people in their marriages when they're trying to, when they're trying to get their needs met, when they're trying to feel like they can connect with other people or I'm sorry, connect yeah. with their spouse in a way that's meaningful, but feeling like that person's not this, 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 this. And they have this entire inner standard that they feel like a relationship should be. But then when they notice that standard, they feel shameful themselves for, I don't know, not doing what they feel like they should do. I guess yeah. I have 10 different scenarios that are jumping in my head, but what, uh, what are situations that you see even just as a pastor in your own church of people playing by these shameful games that they build that they think are really uh, like freeing and, and open and yeah well I mean first off I think you just articulated better than I have ever heard the psycho-spiritual dynamics behind a lot of the culture wars you yeah. know wow and yeah. behind yeah. so many millennials deconstructing their Christian faith for those that came from you know I, I just when you what I see behind every Instagram post of railing against whatever form of oppression it is like when I know the stories behind them, mm. it's almost always rooted in wounding and almost always rooted in some painful relational experience, almost always rooted in shame and sin and fear, you know? And I think one of the great challenges, and I think you just articulated it, is, you know, the West, and this is not actually recent, you know, Patrick Deneen, who's a political philosopher, would argue that this goes back to the founding of America and even the Enlightenment. Um, but it's, it's reached its full flowering in recent decades. But the West and America in particular is really, he would say an attempt to make a new kind of human being around the redefinition of freedom from power to permission. So mm -hmm. what most people mean by freedom right now is the ability to do whatever you want without any external you know, rules or structures or authority figures or guardrails in place, as long as it doesn't quote harm anybody. And of course, this is a massive problem in a pluralistic nation because harm requires an agreed upon definition of good and evil. It's a very biblical idea. I read this morning in Romans, Paul said like, love does no harm to a neighbor, yeah. but Paul is working off a transcendent source of moral authority. So he can define certain actions as loving or harmful or hateful based on a transcendent source. America can't do that. We're a pluralistic secular nation with different ideas about the good and we agree on some things, um, like, you know, but not all things. There's a lot of things we don't agree on. And so to call an action harmful or not means you, you have to agree upon what, what's good for a person mm -hmm. and what's loving for a person. And if you don't agree on that, then you're, you're kind of up the creek, you know? So free, this kind of new bourgeoisie definition of freedom is the ability to do whatever the hell you want 
without anybody to tell you different, as long as it's true to yourself and that inner locus point, it, it turns out to look a lot like what the New Testament writers call slavery. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it's tied to addiction and or compulsion, if you want to use, you know, more technical language and addiction and the, the addiction epidemic across our country. And it's baked into us. Like I was, I was thinking about, you know, uh, Frozen, like the Disney movie, like little kids, like what's the line in her song? Whoa. No rules, no something, no right, no wrong for me. I'm free. Yeah. So her definition of freedom is there's wow. no rules. There's no morality. There's no right or wrong. I can do whatever I want and be true to myself. That's freedom. Yeah. And so we're literally enculturating an entire generation that thinks that's what freedom is when the reality is that ends up often for a lot of people being slavery, slavery to your shame, to your fear, to your performative identity, compulsion, to addiction, to behaviors that are self-defeating and self-destructive and rack you with anxiety and guilt. You don't have anywhere to take them. Whereas the new Testament definition of freedom and really the classical Greek definition of freedom is not permission, but power. It's the ability not to do whatever you want, but to not only want, but do whatever is good. And so oppression is when any, there is very much external oppression. That's like very much a thing, but it's when an external authority source keeps you from doing what is good, mm. not when an external authority source has some form of guardrails that are set over your life. Yeah. And um, I, I think have the a, confusion an analogy over that, that I use. And then I'll I just made a TikTok video on this. I'll, I'll post it. It's so hard to get these ideas okay. in one minute sometimes, but I know, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's an analogy of, yeah, you know, if you have you ever gone to the grocery store and you have no list, you're just kind of going up and down the aisles, like picking stuff out that you want to eat for the week. Like it feels like you have freedom. So money. Yeah. yeah, right. It feels like freedom. And then you get home and you forgot lemons or <laughs> you forgot uh, milk or and, yes. and, and you spend two hundred and twenty dollars and you're like, what the crap? Now I don't have money for this yeah. week. And you have <laughs> ingredients to make like two things and then a bunch of processed food. That's what happens. It's right. like I have a bunch of like frozen egg rolls or something and <laughs> i don't even eat egg rolls why did i buy these and but it feels like freedom but then when you actually get to cooking it feels like slavery or it feels like uh, yes. i think in the video I just use like it feels like constraint yeah but when you go into the grocery store with a list and even though that constrains your options it's less fun you know going in with a list because you're you don't know where anything is and you're looking around it's more fun just to kind of or at least for me like just to wander around i know some people hate grocery shopping and find the whole thing. i love it yes i love it it's like walking around I love a giant it pantry but uh <laughs> but I when you go and never do it when i'm hungry because it always goes badly but yeah, i always spend at least a hundred dollars more <laughs> but uh when you go in with a list it feels like constraint but when you get to cooking it feels like freedom yeah because you have all the ingredients and you could probably make more food for less money yes and so there's this idea That's of good we feel like um and, and like my language in therapy is very much like value-driven behavior, right? So that's that's something right. that's kind of worldview neutral. Yes, like, whatever your worldview is, yes. Yeah. Whatever How do you, you live in alignment right with your wrong. values? Exactly, yeah. Whatever you think is right and wrong, live live by that consistently. Yeah. That, that's the let only me help, let me Let me help you integrate to that. Yeah. 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 It's when we yeah, you know, our values and act outside of our values that there's almost this uh, this inner sickness that happens where we say we believe one thing and we act a different way. And yes. the, the most surefire way to get to that sickness is just acting on your mood. And, you know, I, I think about that a lot through the lens of my marriage. I'm coming up on 20 years now. And, awesome. you know, Tim Keller, yeah, Tim Keller has that great line about how freedom isn't the absence of constraints. It's 
the ability to choose the right constraints that in the end will set you free. Oh, cool. And an optimal example, I mean, you could use a thousand examples of that from the grocery store to exercise to a budget. You know, a great example is marriage. Marriage is a chosen constraint. Like you make a, a volitional decision to constrain your sexuality, your body, your emotional intimacy, your entire life until death do us part to one other person out of billions of other people on the planet. I mean, talk about limiting your options. Holy cow, you know? And even if marriage doesn't remotely mean what it used to in our culture still, that's the intention behind it. Yeah. And there are so many, every marriage, uh, except for the dishonest one, ones, pretty much, I mean, maybe that's an overstatement. Let me just say the vast majority of marriages that are honest and self-aware at some point want out of the constraint. And that marriage feels, it feels restrictive. It feels suffocating at times. It doesn't feel fun or joyful or life-giving. This is, I think, inevitable. And I think people that don't talk about that are either just in denial or dishonest, I think, you know? Um, maybe I'm just really cynical, but I don't think, and I have a lovely wife. So this is, this is nothing against her. She's beyond lovely. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's, if I were to say in one of those moments or one of those years or those seasons together, I'm out, I don't want this constraint. This is restrictive. This is holding me back from my true self and the life I want. And I were to divorce her and go my own way. Then I would be living in the slavery of a heart that always has to get what it wants to be happy. And that is a far greater form of oppression wow. and, and repression and emotional suffocation than learning to delight in the woman I married almost 20 years ago. So can you and learning that for me? Cause I can, I can yeah. hear people listening being like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you think when you say, okay, my happiness, like the slavery of living in a world where I have to get what I want in order to be happy. Yes. Beautiful way to put that. Open that up. Yeah. Me. Well, I mean, this is a, like a very Christian idea, like, yeah. you know, tied to the Christian contemplative practice is fasting, which is, which is not a part of mindfulness. It is actually part of Buddhist stuff, but you know, fasting is actually like a core Christian practice and it does a lot of things. It's holistic, it's embodied, it's psychosomatic, it's, you know, beautiful. But one of the many things that fasting does is it teaches you to be happy and at peace, even when you don't get what you want, so that of your own will, so that when somebody else or life or God or your boss or a global pandemic doesn't give you what you want, you can still be happy and at peace. Mm -hmm. So that it's like the little children, like the most, um, you see this, you work with kids, the most miserable, unhappy kids are the ones that who their parents give them whatever they want. Mm. It does not make them happier. It makes them miserable. They get stuck. They get locked in the prison of their own narcissism and their own self. I mean, C.S. Lewis said, and actually in context, this was in a letter where he was actually writing about masturbation of all things. Mm. And he has a beautiful insight where he said, the entire human journey is learning to come out of the prison of the self. Mm. And he said, the great danger is that we come to love the prison. Whoa. And so as long as you live in the prison of where you have to get what you want mm. to be happy, yeah. no person, no marriage, no job, no life, no identity, no sexual experience, no income bracket, mm. no travel experience, no passport, no job, like fill in the blank, nothing will 
ever be able to always give what you want and you will run over people, sabotage people. Mm -hmm. People will become objects by which you try to self-gratify and feed your narcissism. Even if it masquerades as I'm falling in love or this is great or I love these people. You know, and I'm not trying to be really cynical here. I'm just no, you're, you're absolutely right. Really honest. I was listening That's to all I'm trying to say. I was listening to a millionaire, an interview with a multimillionaire just, and he's, and he's known on Instagram for just living this really like crazy lifestyle with all yeah. the tools and yachts and patients <laughs> and women and, you know, just like going really crazy. And he, in an interview, he said, and it was so profound. I, I think it, I've thought about it for years since seeing this interview. He was like, I can't just go on a vacation and enjoy a normal vacation. Like a lot of people in America, if you told them, Hey, I'm going to pay for you to go to Hawaii, you're going to get a room in a hotel and I'll give you a rental car and, you know, and, and maybe some money to go out to eat. They would be stoked, you know, but me, I have to have the best jet. Like I have to have the best yacht. It has to be the most yes. beautiful women. It has to be the craziest party. And because there's a, the, the psychological reality is that you habituate to things that you enjoy yes. so quickly. And yes. so if you really are living this lifestyle, I have to have what I need or want, or I have to feel this way. These rules that we set in our lives that, that become these standards by which we build our identities, really. Which, like, which, which give way to our compulsions, which become our addictions and our prisons. Yeah, they rule you. And, uh, and you notice, and I did a little TikTok video on this too, that your the options that you can enjoy get smaller and smaller. And, and I used yes. an analogy in a tiny little video on, I got a new mattress. And it's just the best. It's like so comfortable. But then I went to a hotel and the mattress, I got a terrible night's sleep. And I'm like, man, before when I had a crappy mattress, I could get a good night's sleep anywhere. But now yeah. that I have a great mattress. Now you need it. The There's places that where line. You get a good night's sleep shrink. I think it's Leslie Jameson and her memoir, The Recovery and on Addiction. I think it's her. I could be misquoting. Um, I read it in Jamie K. Smith's recent book on Augustine, which is mind blowing. But she has that great line where she defines addiction as increasing desire with decreasing pleasure and reward. So, good. so like the more you feed, the more you give in to that, I want this, let me get it. Actually, it's like, it's like throwing fuel. It's like pouring gas on the fire. Like your desire keeps going up. And as the, and the law of returns, it's diminishing law of returns. Like the reward pleasure satisfaction actually goes down like I read a great book I'm spacing on the name of both the author and the book by a psychologist a couple of years ago on the difference between like pleasure and happiness and basically it was a psychohistorical take on America saying that America has confused pleasure and happiness and he did all the science like you know he kind of summarized it as the difference between dopamine and serotonin mm -hmm. and basically talked about how pleasure is something that it's about wanting something about getting pleasure from doing something, but contentment is actually more about the absence of want it, contentment or happiness is you define happiness as contentment, the sense of yeah. like, I'm sitting here drinking iced tea on my porch, petting my dog. And I'm just deeply happy with the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to have a new car or a new thing or experience this or have people validate me on Instagram. Like, I'm just here and I'm just me and I'm just in the God's beautiful world. And I'm, I'm at peace. Mm -hmm. That's happiness. Mm -hmm. And when you, and when you redefine happiness as pleasure, you just end up, you know, biblical language chasing the wind. Yeah. And I think there's that, I hear that version of happiness kind of working its way into the modern kind of conversation around mindfulness and just detaching from desire. The less things you want, 
then the less standards you have to hit in order to be happy is another way to think about that. But again, it's, I, I think you'd agree with me. It's this pouring out without filling up. And there's something so powerful about the Christian idea of Sabbath, the Christian idea of Christian contemplation, sitting in the, the presence of God. I've been reading um, Martin Laird's book. I actually got the recommendation off your Instagram. I just thought it looked cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's what sent me on this tangent down the, <laughs> down yes. like uh, the cloud of unknowing and everything. Um, got it. Yes. So, it's such a good, such a good rec. So thanks for that. I, yes. I yeah, you bet. Something he talks about is, is just, you're not necessarily when you're in this silence, you're not in the absence of something. You're in the presence of everything. Yes. And it's like the silence that contains all noise and absence of noise was, was a way that he talked about it. And yeah, and I've been, I've been doing that maybe the past nine days. Right. So it's, is what I've been like consciously like trying to step into like 20 minutes of just complete silence and trying to like remove my mind from any thoughts. And, and I thought yeah. that was really strange at first because I have all these mindfulness techniques I've learned in psychology that I think work and that are great. And so it's just funny playing by new rules a little bit, but one of uh, the author of the cloud of unknowing, what he talks about is like, you really want to not even reflect on good things. He's like, because good things will yeah. take you on trails and your thoughts. Like you're thinking about, you know, how much you love the Lord. And then you're thinking about all the blessings you have in your life. And then you're thinking about the blessings you have today. And then you're thinking about the blessings that, uh, oh, that are coming later. And then, oh, what do I need to do tomorrow? And oh, today I need to make sure yes. I still, and then your, your head's just gone. You know, you're <laughs> it's gone. So he's like, really create a space where you're content and you're at peace in the presence of God without desiring anything, without desiring to know anything new about God, without trying to feel anything, without trying to attain, without trying to transcend. It's simply being in the presence of God. And what, what I noticed was like, I didn't have this big, like, aha, like top of the mountain kind of thing, but the rest of my day felt really different. And that's what, what I thought was strange. It's like, the things that used to really trap, like I, I wanted to be on my phone less and I wanted to yeah. be less distracted. And I felt more present with my clients. And I was in a moment in the grocery store where I was standing behind a lady that was deciding to kind of like desanitize her cart, but in the entryway to the, <laughs> to the grocery store, <laughs> oh, and she was no. taking her sweet. <laughs> oh no. And I noticed uh, this anger pop up, but then I also noticed this yeah. patience that really wasn't there before. And I was like, Oh, this is okay. I'm not in a rush. Like she's, she's a little bit older. She's just making sure that she's not going to get sick. Why am I angry at her? Yeah. Like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pause. And it was almost like the world, uh, in, in, in that book, like he talks a lot about this, the world gets different. Yeah. And, uh, and your pleasures and your, your vices and the things that used to grab you and, and trap you, they feel less, um, like they have less of a grip on you. And even in just nine days of doing it, it's not very long at all, but like just feeling in small, subtle moments, just this contentment. And I think that's yeah. kind of what we're getting at. And, and a lot of people ridicule Christianity for this idea. And, and it's very vogue to get frustrated at um, the idea of detaching and fasting and almost this stoicism that feels so antithetical to um, just modern culture where that says like, stop shaming yourself for wanting and feeling and experiencing pleasure. Like, why do you have all these right. and limitations and, and, uh, but few people articulate a really powerful account for why constraint leads to freedom. It's not even just that it's yeah. good and that it's a good value and that it's a mature thing to do or something. It's like, no, it actually 
it leads to more of what you really want and what your heart desires yeah. isn't just to be pleasured 24 seven. It's to be no whole. pleasure is pleasure is not the driving desire of the human soul. I don't think I do not think the driving human desire, a, a secular culture would kind of tell us that what most people want is power and pleasure. I think what most people want is love and joy and peace. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And you know, that's, that's the major difference between uh, Christian detachment, if that's even the right word and Eastern detachment is we're not trying to detach from all desire, mm. you know, Augustine and other Christian saints would say we're creatures of desire. We're run by desire. The problem is not that we desire is that we desire the wrong things in the wrong order is what mm -hmm. he would say. Yeah. So, you know, Augustine and most of the Christian contemplative tradition wouldn't try to get you to the place where you'd no longer desire. It would say that every surface level desire for pleasure, for this, for marriage, to get out of your marriage, for whatever, for validation is actually it is actually the symptomatic of this deeper desire for union with God. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order used the language. Most people translate in English as indifference as a synonym to detachment. But a lot of scholars actually say that the word, the Spanish word he used would be better translated as freedom. And what do you call it? You know, you had that famous line, like I want and choose, you know, I do not, desire to live a wealthy life or a poor life, a healthy life or a sick one, a long life or a short one, but only what leads to God's deepening life in me. So detachment or indifference or freedom or whatever you want to call it in the Christian tradition isn't necessarily about detaching from all desire. It's about detaching from every single desire except the deepest one, whatever leads to God's deepening life in me and letting that desire be completely satisfied through union with God. And contemplative prayer is the practice by which we, there are others, but you know, the main practice by which we experience that deep satisfaction and union with God. And then you can stand behind in our best moments, the elderly lady and be okay. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody can criticize you and you don't have to defend yourself or the world can be a mess and you can be at peace with that, even as you work for its healing and renewal, you know? Yeah. I think, I think too, a critique that I hear often is, is really neutralized quite quickly with this idea of that it's out of your affections and desire for connection with God, that these things are conducted, not out of a way of trying to earn, improve and. Oh, goodness. Attain. No. Oh, goodness, God. no. Yes. It, as powerful and, and beautiful as we're talking about it now, it can be just as poisonous if done out of a heart of trying to earn it. And Oh, 100%. Like we saw that with purity culture. <laughs> like we saw that with this desire to save sex for marriage and, and to not touch each other or even date each other. Like kiss right. dating goodbye. And uh, <laughs> But it was all done out of this, at least in my experience and, and the cr critics of it will talk about. It's immense fear and this immense, uh, not even like desire for like their future spouse and, and the beauties of marriage and trying to contextualize all that within like yeah. their faith. It was just, it was a standard that they needed to perform. And if they didn't yeah. perform it, then they're insufficient and they're dirty. And that caused as much pain yes. and turmoil as the thing that they were trying, as, as the thing that purity culture was trying to help people avoid. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just amazing how those, oh no, it's tragic. I mean, it's no surprise that the founder of that ended up divorcing his wife and leaving the faith, 
you yeah. know, like that's, that's where it goes when that, those insidious motivations get in there. It, everything has to be motivated by love. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to just be a, a burning desire to receive the love of God and, and to give it back in turn. And I think about all the disciplines I have in place for my marriage, you know, yeah, I mean, there's nothing bad with like saying like I, for moral reasons, discipline myself to have a date night or whatever. But the, the reality is there's a discipline there and a structure and a constraint of every Thursday night we have a date because I desire intimacy with my wife. I desire union with her. I want to, I want to share soul. I want our souls to co-mingle. I, I want to know what she's thinking and feeling. I want to be deeply attuned to each other emotionally on the same page. I want that. So I schedule in a date night and there are most weeks I can't wait for it. Some weeks I'm like last week I was exhausted. I had a bad day at work. Yeah, yeah. I was tired. I did not, I didn't want to go, but you do it anyway. There is a discipline side to it, but it's because there's a deeper part of me that wants intimacy and a healthy marriage and to become a person of love. You know, it's that it's those deeper. I think that's the problem with the West is we really struggle with the hierarchy of desires. Mm-hmm. And often we, we forget that our strongest desires, which are normally bodily desires for food, for sex, for whatever pleasure are actually not our deepest desires. Mm. And that's where like a true Christian theology of sex, like it's, it's, honestly, I think the people that know have the best Christian theology of sex are celibate monks and nuns, like, you know, like Catholic, like Ronald Rollheiser, if you've ever read him, oh, celibate Catholic priest, never, he's like 70s, never had sex. He writes about sex a bunch. His understanding, I've been, I've been having sex for two decades and his understanding of human sexuality it is so far beyond mine. I mean, it's just, wow. it's so profound because he understands that sex is not actually a desire in your body for an orgasm. It's a desire, it's a deeper desire in your soul for communion and contribution. Wow. And like these are, and you know, in the Catholic tradition would say, you don't have to have sex to have communion and, and make a contribution. And so like, what's those deeper desires below the bodily desires for pleasure? They're often the strongest. Those are the ones that present themselves most forcibly to our awareness. Yep. But actually the deeper desires, that's, that's what I want. That's what I want to give into, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and everyone I know that, that has pushed into those spaces out of love has come out better for it, but pushed out into those places out of fear has come out worse. Yes. And there's no neutral wow. ground when it comes yeah. to, okay, I want to pursue even something like, and, and that's why the standards don't work. Like we talked about it in self-esteem. We talked about it in uh, performative, like identity formation. It's like, yeah, it's not the standard. It's the, it's, uh, it's love and yeah. it's pursuing what matters to you. And it's not bad to have goals. Like, I don't know. I don't want anyone to hear this thinking that I'm saying it's, 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 uh, it's bad to have ways that you categorize your identity. We were just talking about, like, if you don't have categories, then you suffer, but right it's it's knowing the ontology or the why underneath what you're doing and that actually resonating with something that matters to you and you can go through sacrifice something like sitting quietly for 20 minutes will is a very like psychologically distressing experience (laughs) (laughs) it's not pleasant it's uh it's anxiety provoking and and right uh, taking a sabbath and really disconnecting from your phone and choosing to like, I don't know, for us, Dude, we, we do all the crap light. will come up. Yes, oh, yeah. yeah, same here. And you all have plans that you, yeah, you'd rather be doing this. So you have a TV, it's Super Bowl Sunday, I don't know, whatever. And 
There's all sorts of things, but are you sacrificing because you want something more? Or are you sacrificing because you feel like this is how I perform to be okay and to be valuable? Yeah. And, uh, and that seems like the center. How would you summarize that? Yeah, no, not better than you, man. That was so well said. I think people run from any form of silence, solitude and rest because your true self comes to the surface in those places. Yeah. Whether that's Sabbath, whether that's 20 minutes in the morning of contemplative prayer, whether it's just turning off all your devices and going on a walk before bed, people run. Why is it that we always have to have the radio on or the TV playing or every quick second at a stoplight, we have to scroll through whatever, read the news or it. Like why, what is, is that just like Silicon Valley's, you know, digital addiction stuff or is there is there a deep and hu- deeper human fear that who we actually are might catch up to us and th- and this is where and that is my blatant christianness coming out here i i think that the secular don't let anybody judge you don't let anybody say your behavior is wrong you're good just the way you are speak your truth define good and evil for yourself it is the most suffocating worldview you could possibly have because it's there is no atonement there's no forgiveness there's no compassion there's no way back to god and you live surrounded by this undercurrent of shame and fear and christians feel this too like when you get into often religious culture is even worse you know and i think the way out is not away from God is toward God and discovering that God. And I'm like, I'm an Orthodox Christian. I'm Orthodox in all Christian doctrines. I'm not a liberal, but I think that when you, when you come into the presence of God in prayer, when you rest, when you come to the quiet, what you experience is a God who is fierce, but is also overwhelmingly who is love. It's not loving, who is love. This is why in Christian theology, God is Trinity because God is love and love cannot exist outside of relationship. Therefore God must be a relationship because God is love. And when you come into that presence of love, I mean, in Exodus, you know, God's the one place in all of the old Testament where God defines himself and he gives his name and he says who he is and what he's like. The first thing on the list is I'm compassionate defining character trait of God in his own self-identification is compassion. And compassion is an emotional word. A lot of times what, you know, it's a feeling word. It's the the root Hebrew word there is rachum. And it's the word used for how a mother or a father feels about their infant or little child, Mm -hmm. which is probably, you know, you could give us the science behind it. The strongest attachment bond there is between a mother and a child, a, a young child, not a teenage child. <laughs> the attachment's breaking down by then. But uh, yeah, and like that's how God, that's God's baseline emotional disposition toward all is compassion. The way that a, a loving mother looks into the eyes of her, you know, one and a half year old. That's God. And all human analogies break down because, you know, mothers and fathers often get it royally wrong and bring their own trauma and woundedness Mm -hmm. into it. So it's not everyone's experience, but I think we all get the image of that, Mm. that that's God's emotional disposition. And when you come into the loving presence of that, 
man, all, all the other stuff, all the performance, all the striving, all the earning, all the legalism, all the fear, all the shame, it just disappears. And you realize I'm, this is Jesus in the desert, right? And the satanic temptation, not what I do. I do this little liturgy with my son every morning before he goes to high school. We did it today. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I have. I'm not what other people say about me. I'm the beloved of God. It's who I am. No one can take it from me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to hurry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. Yeah. That's it. That feels like a good liturgy to land on for today. <laughs> it's a little cheesy, but it's no, Jesus, not but, at all. Yeah, I got teary eyes. <laughs> I want to embody that too. Thank you so much for yeah. this conversation. It was so meaningful and insightful and we went into all sorts of places I didn't predict and just, I had a ball. (laughs) Oh, well, this is a dream come true to get to chat to you. I mean, obviously I, I, I kind of part of a deep part of me kind of wishes I became a clinical psychologist. And so in the meantime, I will just listen to people like you and read and pay attention. I just, I'm so grateful for the work that you do and the healing of the soul. I think that the work that you do, even with people that aren't Christians and even through, you know, I love how you do it through that lens, but it is pastoral work and um, it's an honor to meet you. Thank you for the light that you're bringing into the world and uh, let's get coffee. I'd love to, I'd love to have an embodied, I'd love to share a meal or, you know, at some point it would be really fun to keep the conversation going. Me too. I'd love it. We'll, we'll have many conversations in the future. Anyone listening, make sure if anything that John Mark was saying just resonate with your soul, his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, is just a gem. So you got to pick it up. All right. I'll talk to you next time.